I'm Alec Lace. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Welcome, everybody, to episode 419 of the podcast. I am happy, as always, to be here with you. Thank you for stopping by. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please get over there and bang that subscribe button. You do not want to miss all the action that's coming your way right here on First Class Fatherhood. All right, dads. Today's guest on the podcast is Edgar Award-winning writer Andrew Claven. Andrew is also the host of his own podcast, The Andrew Claven Show, on The Daily Wire. Some of Andrew's best-selling books have turned into movies that you may have seen on the big screen, including Don't Say a Word, which starred Michael Douglas, and True Crime, directed and starring Clint Eastwood. He has been nominated for five Edgar Awards, which are presented every year by the Mystery Writers of America and named after Edgar Allan Poe. Andrew has won the award twice. He's extremely talented, well-written, and well-spoken. It's an honor to have him on the podcast today. Andrew Claven will be here with me in just a few minutes, so please... Stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Andrew Claven was recorded on video and is available for you guys to watch on my YouTube channel. So if you'd like to watch today's conversation, please hit me with a subscribe. First Class Fatherhood on YouTube. The link is in the description of today's podcast episode. All right, if you enjoyed today's episode, you may want to flip it back and listen to some of the other First Class Fathers who are best-selling novelists that I've had the honor of interviewing on the podcast here, such as Brad Meltzer, Con Igledon, Brad Taylor, Sean Parnell, and some others. All of those interviews are available to listen to at your convenience in the archives of the podcast. All right, and tomorrow on the podcast here, the host of Million Dollar Listing, James Harris, stops by the show. Million Dollar Listing is a Bravo reality series. You can catch it right now on Hulu. James Harris has been just crushing the real estate game out in L.A. for a long time. If any of you dads are into the real estate game or considering a real estate career, do not miss out on tomorrow's episode. Friday, I'm going to have a fresh Frogman Friday to close out the week. Former Navy SEAL Will Brown joins me. He organized the Frogman Swim across the Hudson River and raised a lot of money for the GI Go Fund. More on that coming Friday. If you're enjoying the podcast here, please consider hitting me with a rating or review on iTunes. It goes a long way to help me out here. And as always, dads, please help me spread the word about this podcast. Every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list, let them know about the show to see us celebrating fatherhood and family life. Fatherhood rocks. Family values rule. And every day is Father's Day right here with me. And I'm going to be right back with Andrew Claven. I'm Alec Lace, and you're listening to First Class Fatherhood. All right, dads, if we learned anything this last year, it's that building health and immunity is more important than ever, and that all begins with what you put on your plate. Belcampo is on a mission to revolutionize the meat industry for the well-being of people, the planet, and animals by farming meat the right way with certified humane, regenerative, and climate-positive practices, which means it's better for you, the planet, and the animals. That's a trifecta that I'm proud to be a part of, and right now, First Class Fatherhood listeners can have Belcampo sustainably raised meats delivered right to your door using my promo code FATHERHOOD at belcampo.com forward slash fatherhood and get 20% off your first order. Go visit belcampo.com forward slash fatherhood, use the promo code FATHERHOOD at the checkout, and save 20% off your first order at Belcampo. Joining me now, First Class Father, Andrew Claven. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. All right, let's start it like this. How many kids do you have and how old are they? I have two kids. I'm sorry you asked me that because now I've got to compute their ages, but I've got a son who's, I think he's 29, and uh, my daughter would be about 37. Okay, very cool. Uh, any grandkids yet or not yet? Yep, I've got uh, one grandkid and one on the way. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Um, If you could, please, Andrew, just take a minute here to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. 
Well, I've been a novelist most of my life, a crime novelist. I've written a lot of, um, you know, crime and suspense novels. I was award-winning. They were made into movies. I had a great time. I still do that, and it's still very important to my life, but I've also become a political commentator, and I have a show uh, on the Daily Wire, The Andrew Clavin Show. Yeah, wow, very cool. What a successful career you've had here now. Uh, About how old were you then? You don't have to do the math here, but about how old were you when you first became a dad, and how did becoming a father kind of change your perspective on life? Well, it changed everything. I was about 28, I would say. Uh, And I always compared it to uh, having a curtain open up. You know, in in the theater, they sometimes have a background that's painted on, and sometimes that background will open up, and you'll realize there's a much bigger stage behind it. And that's what it was like for me having kids. It was as if I suddenly realized I had been living in two dimensions, and suddenly I was living in the real world in in three dimensions. And I mean that in every way. I mean, my my joys were more joyful. My sorrows were more sorrowful. Uh, my worries certainly were greater, but also my uh, my hopes and, and dreams about the future. I was invested in the future all of a sudden. And, and I got to know, you know, you not only get to know your children, but you get to know yourself. You get to know yourself in time. You see yourself aging. You see yourself growing. Uh, and, and you see things that, how can I put this, things that didn't matter come into perspective in ways you didn't expect. So a lot of people talk about the fact that now you have all these responsibilities. And yes, that's true. But the responsibilities are so organic that what you're really finding is part of yourself that you didn't know was there. It was a, an amazing experience as as great as advertised as far as I was concerned. Yeah, very well said, Andrew. And, and it's been the same for me. I have four kids myself. And that's why I, I'm on here trying to so much to encourage the young men uh, that fatherhood is something to embrace because we have this terrible underlying uh, feeling from the young men today that fatherhood and family life is something that they want to avoid and not something that they want to embrace. And uh, I hear it. I drive Uber on the weekends and I hear it all the time from the young men. When I tell them I have four kids, they look at me like I got four heads and they think like it's the last thing in the world they want to do. So it's like important for me to try to turn that that narrative around and and and, and jumping into that. What would you say then were the most um, what were the top values that you had hoped to instill in your kids as they grew up? Well, I think uh, they got, I, I would hope that they got from me, uh, you know, honesty and integrity. I, I really never cared what my kids did for a living, uh, how they lived their lives, but I did want them to be honest and I did want them to have integrity. I, I, I hear too often uh, people saying, keep your head down, uh, don't rock the boat. Don't take the penalty, you know, uh, just get just get by. And I never wanted my kids to live like that. I don't live like that. And I don't think that's a happy, joyful or full way to live. So I wanted my kids to know that they had the right to be who they are in the world uh, and to do that as long as they did that with honesty uh, and authenticity, you know, that, that really mattered to me. And I think luckily from uh, from their mother, they got all the tenderness and generosity uh, that you would expect to come from a terrific uh, woman. And uh, and so I think they I'm really thrilled with the way they came out. Yeah. And, and when you say that there, the, the, the two parent households is another thing I focus on a lot on the uh, on the podcast here. We got a real fatherless crisis going on in our country and, and the results have been just devastating. We can look all across the country and see whenever I see these uh, riots and these looting. It, to me, I don't see a police problem. I always see a parenting problem. And I think a lot of that comes from not having that balance of a mother and a father in the household growing up. And I've just been seeing that, you know, uh, all all throughout this election cycle, especially here. We can just see it. Um, Why why do you think, in your opinion, we have this fatherless crisis, the family units breaking down? And how in the world can we get it fixed and stable and back to our strong family units again? 
Well, first of all, let me just tell you, I completely agree with you about this. I mean, I've, as a crime writer doing research, I've been in a lot of prisons, and you can go down one cell after another after another, and sometimes, you know, people with certain political agendas will say, well, they're all one color, or they're all one race, or something like this, and what I always saw was fatherless child, fatherless child, fatherless child, every single one of them, the people in prison are almost all, almost all of them fatherless sons, and so this is a tremendous crisis. And I think it's part of a larger crisis. I actually think it's one of the worst symptoms of a disease that has infected uh, the modern mind, which let's call it the disease of materialism. Uh, the idea that all we are are these uh, meat puppets with chemistry sets inside, that we have no spiritual values, that there's no moral world that we can discover uh, through wisdom and through exploration and through thinking and through uh, uh, life experience that we're, we're just these pieces of meat kind of floating from the cradle to the grave. And when you think about that, if you think about children like that, children cost you money. They, they're not, it's not like the old days where they take over the farm or take over your business. They're largely an economic outlay. Uh, the only thing that you're receiving from them are spiritual benefits, and you have the spiritual benefit of bringing new spirits into the world and helping to shape those spirits as they were meant to be. But if you don't look at the world like that, if you just look at the world as a series of pleasures and pains, uh, if you just look at the world as a place where the greatest thing you can do is uh, succeed in your career, make a lot of money, uh, be comfortable, have a lot of sex, why would you have kids? Why would you, uh, you know, uh, commit yourself to one woman for life? Why would you commit yourself to a marriage which might have difficulties that you have to navigate through? It really is an entire attitude that, that in some ways is a, an evil side effect of a good thing, which is the rise of science and medication. And science has, has done such a great um, job in, in manipulating the material world, in, in manipulating our health and manipulating our conveniences and giving us more convenience, that the underlying ethos of materialism, that there's nothing else there but our material comfort, our material good, our wealth, our comfort, and our uh, health, that that's all there is to life, I think has been very, very destructive. And so, you know, I don't want to bang the drum for religion, but I think at least a spiritual life, a spiritual approach to life really changes the way you look at things. It changes the way you look at women. It changes the way you look at family. It changes the way you look at children. And it puts them very much at the center of your heart and at the center of the business of being a human being. And so I think we've just got to stop talking as if everything was, was uh, stuff. You know, as if stuff was all that mattered. We have to start talking to one another as if we're immortal souls, because that's what I think we are. Yeah, very well said, Andrew. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm a person that keeps God first in my life. Uh, we're a family that eats dinner together every night. We pray before we eat every night yep. together. And I think it's so important. And you combine that fact that God's been removed, plus you have the fatherless Christ. I think those two things alone, I mean, if we could just straighten those two things out, I think the majority of the issues that we're seeing in our country would go away. And, and unfortunately... Uh, a lot of this seems to be tied to this, whatever it is, this um, uh, af uh, affection with socialism that we're seeing. And it's very, very dangerous to see how many people have embraced this type of ideology. And I don't know. I, obviously, I think it's coming from a lot of the school system, but I, I think this goes along with the breaking down of the nuclear family. I, th I think that's right up there. We see Black, Black Lives Matter. They've had that as a part of their open mission statement was to just destroy the nuclear family unit. And I don't see how and, and, and amongst the, the, the black population, it, the fatherless crisis is something like 70, 73 percent. So the worst thing that could happen in the community would be to further destroy the nuclear family units. And I think that's directly tied to socialism. So how can we kind of uh, market this way that that's not the right way to go. And, uh, you know, free market capitalism, uh, individualship, uh, freedom, liberty and all that stuff is the way to go. 
Well, once again, you're, you're talking about spiritual values. Liberty is a spiritual value. What socialism says is that everything comes down to material, and if you and I have the exact same amount of money, then somehow we're equal. Now, you and I already know we're equal. We know we're equal in the sight of God. We know we're equal in our rights. We know we're equal in our dignity and, and the way the law should treat us. You know, we're going to take different paths in lives and we're, life, and we're going to do different things, and, and we're not going to measure our equality by the amount of stuff we have. Uh, I don't I don't compare myself to people with more stuff or less stuff than me. I, I'm trying to do what God made me to do. That's my whole point and purpose in life. If you're not thinking like that, if all you're thinking about is stuff, then socialism starts to make a lot of sense. I always tell people, you know, I speak in colleges and places like that, and I'll say, you know, if you think about socialism for a minute, it's a system where you go out and work. And then someone else decides how to spend your money. And I said, we already had a system like that down south back before the Civil War. You know, that's not a good system because you're taking away something that's so precious, but it's invisible and it's immaterial, which is people's freedom. You have the freedom, the right to decide how you spend your money. You may make mistakes. You may be greedy. You may not be a generous person, but you can't become ennobled by charity unless you choose to give charity, unless you have the free will to give charity, the free will to love the things you love and hate the things you hate. You're not a free whole person. And these are such spiritual ideas that when you come to people and say, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but I'll give you some money, some free money. A lot of times they'll say, yeah, that will take that. And all these things to me are connected around this materialist idea, this idea of men and women as just objects in space instead of uh, souls. That All of that comes out of that socialism fatherlessness, the turn away from love, the turn away from family, all of those things are connected to that. And I think the, the idea is we have got to find we've got to find a way to speak these ideas into the modern world. Okay? You know, we can't talk, we're not living in first century Palestine, we're not living in thirteenth century Europe. We are living in the modern world and I get that and it's 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 different. But the, the eternal values are just that. They're eternal. And we have to learn new ways to speak about them so that they make sense to modern people. You know, if I could just, I don't need to run on, but, you know, sometimes when I'll, I'll take a cab or an Uber, I'll hear the kids playing rap music and I'll listen to the, to the lyrics of these songs that treat women like garbage. I mean, like garbage, you know, and, and you just think like, why is a woman driver listening to this? Why is a young man listening to a thing where, you know, a song in which they're tapping their toes to ab abusing a woman as if she were just a piece of beef there for their pleasure? And I think the thing is, is they have lost their way inside. And that, that kind of, the fact that they don't even hear that, they don't even hear what a nightmare of abuse that is, uh, is just indicative of a philosophy that's wrong. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like I said, I do drive Uber on Friday and Saturday nights, and mostly I drive college kids around, and, and, yeah. and they always play through the car. And I'll, I'll turn it off sometimes, because especially this WAP song, it's it's absolutely horrendous to listen to the lyrics of it. And these are young girls that are singing it. I'm like, do you really realize what you're saying here? Like, And, and I think that the culture is a big part of it, especially the way even in TV and in movies, we see that single guy portrayed as the guy that is sleeping around. He has no responsibility. He's living the life. And the family guy, they always show him with his head down. Life's kicking him in the ass. He's never getting laid, never having fun. And so why would people want to attain that in their life? So they're always aspiring to have this, and it's back up by our social media because everybody on Instagram is about me, me, me. And I think even if we read the Bible, we see how to attain greatness is to, to become, serve many people, find a way to serve other people. And that really truly leads to greatness. And it's kind of hard to get that message around when they're getting this stuff jammed down your throats uh, from all sorts of pop culture. So I think that is a big problem. And one of the big problems is obviously uh, censorship. I just recently had Dinesh D'Souza on the podcast here. Uh, he was having his um, uh, trouble getting his documentary out there uh, with some censorship issues. 
Uh, I know you're on the conservative side of the ball here. Have you noticed? I mean, we obviously know about the New York Post article getting snuffed out. Like, have you had any issues with yourself or seeing anything as far as censorship coming social media or otherwise? Oh, well, this is the story of my life. And it's one of the reasons I became, you know, started to talk about politics. All I wanted to do is tell stories. uh, But why is first class fatherhood climbing to the top of the podcasting charts? Listen to it, dads like UFC president Dana White, legendary New York City radio host Greg T, and Navy SEAL David Rutherford have to say about the podcast. What a cool podcast. It's one of the coolest ones I've ever did. And congrats, seriously, I mean it. What a cool podcast concept, and uh, I, I love it. Good for you, man. Continued success. Dude, I love this podcast, man. Your questions are phenomenal, bro. Phenomenal. I am really happy. And I can tell you honestly, I'm proud to be a part of it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Alec. And, and God bless you and what you're doing. Keep it up. Uh, I think the uh, compiling this many fathers and this much great information is going to be uh, invaluable in so many ways. So I, I wish you all the best, brother. So let's go, dads. We are not babysitters. We are fathers. And we're not just fathers. We are first class fathers. Subscribe to First Class Fatherhood today getting snuffed out like have you had any issues with yourself or seeing anything as far as censorship coming social media or otherwise oh well this is the story of my life and it's one of the reasons i became you know started to talk about politics all i wanted to do is tell stories uh but i started to talk about politics because i noticed that our first amendment rights are are deteriorating and interestingly when i I call them our first amendment rights but that's not really what they are they're god-given rights they're god-given rights to free speech and the first amendment is meant to protect those rights from the government but the government has to protect them from everybody else. And every censorship is all over the place. And it is especially all over the place when you're talking about God, when you're talking about freedom, when you're talking about individual liberty and individual responsibility. That Your Twitter example is a great one. But you also just have a news media now that is blacking out any story that doesn't tell the narrative they want to tell it. I worked in Hollywood. I had a successful career in Hollywood. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm good at telling stories. I was a good person for them to call up when they needed certain kinds of stories told. When I started speaking out politically, my Hollywood career ended pretty much like that. I mean, my phone stopped ringing almost instantaneously. To this day, when people call me up because they know my stuff is good, uh, they stop calling after they Google me and see who I am and what I believe. So we are committed. We, you know, one side of the aisle and one side of the philosophical divide, more importantly, owns the means of communication. They own the academy. They own the news media. They own the entertainment media. And all this information is coming in from one place and being censored from another place. The idea, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the name of the actor, uh, Chris something. He's a, one of the uh, guys in the Marvel Universe, and he's a big Chris star. Chris Pratt. That, thank you, Chris Pratt. I'm sorry, I'm not a big fan of those things, but, uh, you know, Chris Pratt uh, didn't, att- he didn't attend a Joe Biden fundraiser of the Marvel characters, and he was excoriated for it. He was attacked, he was reviled, and you think, like, you mean he has to support this guy in order to entertain you? He has to support this guy? There's not one comedian on late night television, not one, who supports the conservative or I would call it constitutional point of view. Not one. And if one does, as as Jimmy Fallon was once nice to Donald Trump, he was browbeaten into submission. How is it possible? How is it possible that one half of the country has literally no voice in the academy and the entertainment media and in in large swaths of the news media? And it never occurs to even one leftist to turn to the other leftist and say, 
we can't be right about everything. Maybe we should listen to other voices. Maybe we should invite people in uh, to be part of this conversation. The censorship is everywhere. And not only that, even worse is the people doing the censorship feel justified in that censorship. And that's that's the great danger. They don't feel like, nyahaha, I'm an evil villain silencing the uh, my opposition. What they feel is you guys are the enemy. Uh, you have no right to speak. Your speech is hateful. Your speech is racist. Your speech is bigoted. I am justified and, in fact, virtuous in shutting you down. It's a very, very dangerous moment uh, for America because of that attitude. Yeah, yeah, very well said, Andrew. And I, I see it. I'm, I, I run a small program here, and it's like I, I see it. Like when I have, I had Eric Trump on the show, Sean Hannity, and I just got absolutely destroyed on Twitter, lost followers, all this stuff. But when I have either a gay dad on the show or a left-leaning dad on the show, I never get that blowback from the other side. Nobody cancels me because I had a liberal on the show. And you're only seeing that coming from the one side. And it's pretty obvious, but I don't know, is that just obvious uh, to certain people when you're in it, you don't notice it? I mean, I don't understand why, like you just said, why wouldn't one turn to the other and say, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're right about everything that we say here. Like we're the only ones with the viewpoint. And and I would hope that sooner or later, uh, this is going to come to an end so that it's, uh, you know, you, you have the right to, like you said, if you're a Hollywood actor and you and you make that decision, it kills your career. That's a that's a horrible incentive to have for any actor out there. I mean, so yeah, people people you know die to be in the movie business. I was lucky that I like doing a lot of other things, but you know, just being blunt, it, it cost me millions of dollars to lose that gig, and it was an enjoyable gig and it was fun. But it, I I didn't want to take it uh, at the expense of my integrity and at the expense of my honesty. One of the things that does happen, just like you mentioned, my pal Dave Rubin talks about this. He's a very talented, uh, he has a show, he's an openly gay guy. When he started coming, he was a far leftist, and when he started coming over to the right, he couldn't help but notice just how nice everyone was to him. Nobody was bothering him about his life. Nobody was telling him how to live. Nobody was lecturing him about, you know, sin and uh, and heaven and hell. They just accepted him as he was. Same thing with Candace Owens, a, a, a terrific uh, black woman uh, commentator. When she came over and she started saying, gee, everybody here is so much nicer and so much more accepting. That's because when you look at people as as spirits, when you look at them as souls, a lot of the things that matter in identity politics are kind of secondary, you know? I mean, I, I can have my opinions about things, but I'm not here to run other people's lives. I'm here to, you know, the Bible just tells me love other people, love my neighbor because they're in the image of God. That's pretty much, much where my responsibilities end. And so uh, when they come into that, when people from the left come into that venue, they are shocked uh, often to find out how accepting and how open people are, how much people mingled regardless of color, uh, sexuality, and how much how much laughter there is, in fact, uh, as opposed to those girls sitting in their cars <laughs> screaming into their iPhones about how anguished they are about everything. You know? Yeah, yeah. L- let me just rein this back into you as a dad here for a second, yeah. Andrew. Um, what type of disciplinarian were you as a dad with your kids growing up, and is that different than the discipline style that you grew up with? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I you know... I, well, let me let me answer the first question first. Uh, you know, my, my policy was basically stick to your guns, but don't shoot. Uh, obviously, every parent knows that his ultimate power over his child is physical. You're just bigger and stronger than they are, and you can take things away from them. You can hit them. You can do all kinds of things. I didn't want it to get to that point if I could help it. Any way I could help it, because I don't believe bigger people should hit smaller people if they can help it. Uh, so I just... I just uh, what I did was I enforced discipline without fail. I didn't make a lot of threats, but when I made a lot of threat, 
it was followed through on. If I said, if you do this, this will happen, that happened in my family. And my wife was totally on board with this. There was nothing in our family where I would say, if you do that, you can't watch television tonight or you can't have dessert tonight, where they would do it. And then that consequence wouldn't come through. And because of that, I never had to raise my hand against my kid, which was very good for me. Uh, and one of the proudest moments of my life was when I once asked my son if he was ever afraid I would hit him. And he said, no, I, I thought that would be wrong for someone your size to hit someone my size. And I knew you would never do anything wrong. And I thought, hey, when your son says that to you, that's like, I'd rather have that than an Oscar. I'd rather have that than a Pulitzer Prize, you know, because he knew that our rules were the rules and we stuck to them and we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't back down on them and there was no uh, bargaining, nothing. We didn't make a lot of threats, but when we made them, if we said this ends here, it ended. And the other thing about this, by the way, is that the way you behave matters. I mean, I, I, I said to my wife very early on, it's not enough for us to do right. We have to do right joyfully. They have to see that this is a, a way we love to live. And in doing that, it was really helpful because if in the very rare occasions when I would say to one of my kids, you know, I think you're doing something that's not quite right. Their faces would fall because they knew that was the way I lived. They knew, they knew it was a source of joy in our family. And so they would just say, oh, you know, they would just correct course. And that was great. Yeah, I didn't have a great relationship with my father. Uh, he, he hit me a lot. He was, uh, he, he didn't get, he, something about me just drove him nuts. I was stubborn, I guess. And I wanted to, to go my own way. And I just drove him crazy. He was not a bad man. He was a good man, but we just didn't get along. We never did. Uh, and it was really sad. And one of the things that was so important to me was to be a better father to my kids than he was to me. And I have to tell you, the day, <laughs> the day my daughter was born, my oldest child was born, I thought, you know, that's too low a bar. <laughs> I, can, I can actually do much better than that. And, uh, and I, I'm really happy with the relationship <clears throat> we have, which continues into adulthood. And I think that that, that discipline, again, the, the discipline was just um, what, what, consistency. That was the thing. As, as long as we were consistent, I never had to raise my hand. Sometimes I had to be scary. Sometimes I had to raise my voice. Uh, you know, and I could be a very scary dad in those moments, but I never had to raise my hand. I was really happy about that. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, and I'm, I'm right there with you. With, I mean, I grew up with parents. Uh, alcohol really devastated my family. I grew up, I'm a recovering alcoholic myself, and I think yeah. uh, for my kids, I think the greatest gift I could give them is to be sober and have, give them the opportunity to see me having conquered uh, my addictions and being able to see them li me live in a positive, more uh, fulfilling life. So I think that's a good thing for them to see me living it, not just saying it. So I think hopefully that'll come around to them as they go through. My oldest is only 14, just started high school. So I'm just about to hit all them uh, fun stages of driving and dating and all this other stuff. So uh, I'm trying to prepare myself for it. I just wanted to ask you about what you do. You've obviously had a very successful writing career. The game of writing has changed completely here now. We know e-readers and audio books are very popular now and everything. What kind of advice do you have for parents out there that have kids that are interested in a writing career, becoming an author? Which way would you tell the parents to steer to kids? The first thing I would uh, tell them is to teach your kids that you've got to learn the basics. This is the thing I get, you know, I get letters every single day from people who want to be writers. And sometimes there's a grammatical error in the first sentence. And you think like, you know, what if a carpenter showed up and he didn't know which end of the hammer to use? You know, you have to learn to use language. So kids should learn it. You know, first of all, if kids don't read, they're probably not writers, you know, so they should learn to read. They should read good things. They should read all kinds of things. They should read old stuff and not just the, the modern stuff. But and they should learn the tools of the trade. But the one thing that's really interesting is, on the one hand, the old um, models of publishing 
and uh, the movie business and all that, they've all kind of fallen apart and fractured. On the other hand, there's a lot more independent work that out there that can be done and a lot of ways to make that work successful. So recently, I wrote a, a trilogy of novels called Another Kingdom. And it was a fantasy book, and I'd never written a fantasy book before. All my books had been suspense novels. So I thought, you know, if I just publish this, I don't think I'm going to find an audience for it. So instead, I put it on as a podcast. Two million downloads. I mean, it was a huge success. And we started doing it, just me and a pal of mine, we started doing it in my house. We just did it in my house. And then the Daily Wire, where I work, saw that it was succeeding and said, hey, we want to be part of that. And then they started to promote it, and it became a much more professional endeavor. But that's, that is a way of, and then I published it as a book. Then after that, I sold it as a novel. And so there are just all these new venues, all these new technological uh, ways of getting your work out there. And what I would say is, don't turn your back on the old style. Don't not go to Hollywood. Don't not go to uh, publishing. But don't feel that that's the only things that are open to you. There's a million ways to get your work out there. And some of those ways, if you do it right and if you learn how to do it, you can promote at a very, very high level. Uh, you know, uh, if you look at a book like The Martian, uh, which then became a Matt Damon film, that was a blog. He just was writing the story on a blog. He had 2,000 readers, which is not that many, but they loved it and they started to send him money. And finally, it built up into a huge viral thing. And it's a very entertaining and extraordinarily creative uh, science fiction novel that deserved all the success it got. So uh, the thing is, I think that there is a new let's call it a democratization, where if you have the goods, if you can tell a story well, if you know what you're doing, if you know how to use the materials uh, of grammar and language uh, and can communicate that, there's a lot of places you can go that are not the old venues. And that is very encouraging. Uh, and I think it's something that uh, parents should learn to teach their kids to take advantage of. It's very nerve wracking for a parent to have an artistic kid because it's not the easiest way to make a living. It's, it really is a, a tough road. You're always auditioning, even when you're successful. It's, you're only as good as your last piece. Uh, it's not like being a doctor or a lawyer where you have a steady income and a steady profession, professional life ahead of you. That's why your mom is always saying to you, be a doctor, be a lawyer. <laughs> and they don't like it when you come to them and say, you know, Ma, I'm an artist. That's a tough one for them to take. But there's a lot of opportunity out there and a lot of new ways to do things. And I think that's exciting. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Now, I'm a, just a ferocious reader myself. I try to read at least a book every week. I'm big on trying to get my kids to read. I think it's so important. And one of the things, like, I do like the old stuff, reading the old stuff, watching the old stuff, and listening to the old stuff. With all these advancements that we've had over the years here, there's nobody writing Shakespeare today. There's nobody playing Mozart today. There's there's nobody painting like a, you know, it's like, it's crazy how we've had all these uh, different things, but we, we don't see that type of evolution when it comes to the arts. It almost seems like the music we were talking about before, like it's going in a completely opposite direction. It does. Uh, so, yeah. The culture's it, not in good shape. <laughs> Hopefully we can turn that around. Well, what's that? You've had so much success here on what you've done. You got the show going right now. What kind of goals or plans do you have for yourself for the future here? Well, there's two things I'd really like to do. I mean, one is is I'd like to start writing more nonfiction. I write, I've written a lot of nonfiction, but not as much in book form. And there are certain things that I have to say that I just don't think I can tell in stories. Uh, and, and so I'm hoping to get to do a lot more of that in the new year. Uh, I'm already working on stuff, and it's been it's a really exciting thing to write. Just write my ideas down and the things I've learned and the things I've seen. I wrote my a memoir of my conversion to Christianity called The Great Good Thing, and that's been very popular, and I, I really enjoy doing that, and I'd like to go back and write more about spiritu spirituality and the way it interfaces with literature and the way we can understand the world better um, in, in a religious sense than we can in a materialist sense. And then, you know, I have this urge 
to go back to my roots. You know, I started out as a mystery writer and I became a suspense writer. That's a, a professional division. Not everybody understands what that means, but suspense novels tend to be one-offs with one character who goes through a story and then disappears. And mystery novels, you sometimes have one guy solving mysteries again and again. I kind of like to return to my roots and do a little bit more of that. So I have a lot of things I want to, a lot more writing I want to do. Uh, this has been an exciting period when I've been on camera and been talking stuff I never expected. To, I never expected to be out there personally. Writers spend their time in a room by themselves. That's how I thought I was going to live my life. I'd like to get more back to that a little. I'd like to get back to that more a little bit. Um, being a public figure uh, has been exciting, and I don't want to let it all go. But I'd like to draw back on that a little and move back into the writing room more. Uh, so that's what I'm really looking forward to. Good stuff, Andrew. Last thing I'm going to hit you with here, I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for the new dad or for that about-to-be father who's out there listening? Oh, what a, that's a t- that is a tough question, but I would say the, the biggest thing for me is to remember that these people have been put, have been given to you. This is a gift that they come to you. They're not your property. Uh, they're not there to live out your ambitions. They're not, not there to pay your debts. They're not there to avenge uh, the wrongs that have been done for you. They are there to fulfill the object for which God made them, you know, and that may be totally different than what you thought it was. You know, you may want a kid who's a, an athlete. He may be an intellectual. You may want a kid, uh, you know, who uh, wants to be a, uh, a homemaker and a wife, and she may want uh, some kind of big career. You don't know who God made them to be, and the, the trick to parenting is a kind of, it's kind of like being a, fun, a, a, t- a tunnel, a tunnel through which they pass that keeps them from going off to the side into uh, dishonesty, into criminality, into self-abuse and self-destruction. You keep them from doing all those things, but you let them take the path that God made them to take. Every personality is a path, and I believe every personality is a path to God. And you got to let them take that path and not try to enforce. You, of course, you have to teach them values. Of course, you have to teach them morals. Of course, you have to teach them self-care, but you don't have to uh, force them into a path that you want, going to the college that you loved or going into the profession that you loved or taking over your business. Let them be who they are. And I think that, first of all, you'll have a much happier life as a parent if you do that, and your kids will be much happier in the end as well. Yeah, extremely well said. I love the message. It's been an honor for me. i got to say you're a first-class father all the way, and thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on First Class Fatherhood. Great talking to you. Thanks a lot. Back to wrap things up here on First Class Fatherhood. i got to give a special thank you once again to Andrew Clavin for giving me a few minutes of his time here. It was so cool. Please hit me up on Twitter, guys. So drop me that DM on Instagram. Let me know what you thought about today's episode. I always love to read your feedback. Lock it in. Still more action coming your way on the podcast here tomorrow. The host of Million Dollar Listing on Bravo, James Harris, stops by. If any of you dads out there are interested in the real estate game, you've got to check out tomorrow's episode. James Harris has been crushing it out in L.A. for quite a long time. And Friday, of course, we're going to finish out the week strong with a Frogman Friday. Former Navy SEAL Will Brown will be stopping by the show. That's all I got for you guys today. I'm Alec Lace. Thank you for listening to First Class Fatherhood. Please remember, guys, we are not babysitters. We are fathers. And we're not just fathers. We are first class fathers. Feelings.